this being the last Sunday of our stewardship emphasis, there are commitment cards in the pew racks, but seeing as how the reading is from the book of Revelation, we might should have had paper sacks in case someone hyperventilated. <laughs> in my experience, Revelation intimidates people, really intimidates people. At the seminary when I taught, my students even avoided it like the plagues that are described in its pages. But the good news is that this reading on this day does not feature any beasts or dragons or the seven bowls of wrath or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. No, it's a list, a cargo list, which is not very exciting. I grew up in the port city of Houston, Texas, about 10, 15 minutes away from the port, from the ship channel. And while we used to go under it in a tunnel, when they finally built a bridge, as a kid, I thought this was amazing because Houston is so flat and now we were up high. But more than that, I could look down on those big ships unloading cargo from all over the world and you, you, you had no idea what was all of that stuff in there. That's something of what's going on in this passage, but the way I would describe it is this is the first century version of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Remember that show? Everything in the list was garnered from the, the, the poor and the masses who worked to supply the elite in the empire. Several things stand out to me. Pearls, for instance. Did you catch that one? It's in the reading. There are pearls. And while lots of people have pearls now, not so in the first century. Pearls were incredibly rare. And there's a story about Nero, emperor of Rome, who supposedly would eat some by the handful just to show people how much money he had. That's called disposable income, right? Or purple. Purple's on the list. What they're referring to is the dye that was used to make purple garments because everybody had on fairly drab clothing except if you had purple, you were rich. They extracted it a drop at a time from the veins of tiny shellfish until they had enough to mix together and make a dye for purple. If someone had on purple, oh my gosh, you knew they had money. Or even the wood that's described. It was known for the pattern in the grain that looked like the feathers of a peacock. And, and people in a dinner party would see that, you know, like, oh, look, honey, holding a glass of wine. Oh, look, they, they have one of those peacock tables. I really wish we could get one. Do you think Nebraska Furniture Mart carries one of those? <laughs> the list, even the wheat and the flour, everything was about supplying the rich and the masses paid for it. But if you lean into the list, if you look closely, it's that last item that is so stark. In the translation that we read, it says slaves, human lives. In the Greek, it says bodies, even human souls. In other words, John says, you know, it was just this list of cargo, and oh yeah, there were bodies. But then he adds, human souls, they, they aren't just things that were sold. These are people. But I really think the key to this list is not leaning into it, but stepping back. 
Because when you step back, you look at the big picture. It's gold first and people last. That's Rome's economy and maybe not just Rome's alone. Last Sunday, maybe some of you caught it, 60 Minutes did a story on generic drug manufacturers in Connecticut who had conspired together to raise the prices of these drugs at the same time, thousandfold, taking advantage of the sick. But you know, you gotta make payments to your shareholders. Gold first, people last. And even today, on both sides of the aisle when there's discussions about immigration, one of the first things that happens is people will say, well, it's a boost to the economy or it's a drain on the economy. Really, that's the first thing? They're people. But some of that can just seem so off and out there. You know, it's on 60 Minutes. It's not my life. And then I remembered several years ago, I was on my way to a golf shop. I was going to purchase a driver. Now, if you're not a golfer, here's what you need to know. It's a golf club that changes your life. <laughs> I mean, golfers think that. I was going to get a new driver. It was going to change my life. I went into the shop. I knew the guy that's the manager. He said, hey, take both of these and go see which one works. So I'm getting ready to leave with two drivers. This is amazing. This is the best day ever. And so before I leave, I said, so how, how are you doing? Which in golf terms means, how have your scores been lately? And he said, oh, I'm not playing anymore. I have stomach cancer. I'm dying. Do you know what it's like to drive to a golf course with two drivers when someone just told you they're dying? Every once in a while, we get a glimpse of how stuff is just stuff and people are people. John invites us to look into the very heart and soul of a society that maybe doesn't always have a heart and a soul. Unlike stewardship that gets preached three times every year in May here, there are other messages that are constantly surrounding us. I would even call them sermons, but you don't think of them as sermons. They're called commercials. In 1985, Neil Postman wrote this brilliant book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And one of the many trajectories that he traces is how advertising works on us. He starts, however, by backing up to very early American history. One of the earliest print ads in the Boston Gazette was placed by none other than Paul Revere for wooden dentures. There are no pictures. No pictures in the ad, just a paragraph of exposition. He details the process and procedure, the craftsmanship. It, it, it's totally appealing to the intellect. And Postman says, 1985, all the way to the present, we don't do that so much anymore. Instead, commercials appeal to the emotion. There's this SUV, and it's going off the road and climbing mountains, as if all of us climbed mountains in our cars. But they don't say that because we would say, well, I don't climb mountains. But if you look at the image, you think, you know, there's something rugged about that. Or there's this mattress ad. 
and they don't say anything really. It's just this couple wakes up on the mattress and somehow you sleep better and your sex life is better and your world is better, everything, but they don't say that. They just appeal through the image. How, what, what do we do? How do we make sense of that? What's our strategy? Paul's, uh, not Paul, John's advice earlier in the very same chapter is to resist. He refers to Rome slash Babylon, the city of earth, as a harlot with her wiles and, and luring you, and you're supposed to resist. I don't know if that's a good enough strategy, but my hunch is if we do, at least two things happen. One is I'm not sure it changes the world, but I think it changes us when we resist. little ways. I, I had a friend who taught at a seminary in Atlanta, and he required his preaching students to preach on the streets. Now, I'm not talking about the crazy kind where they yell at you, you're going to hell, and people just walk by and pay no attention. I mean a polished, articulate sermon in front of Coca-Cola's headquarters. When I told my students about that, the first thing they said was, oh my God, I'm glad you don't require that. And the second thing they said was, you know, it wouldn't make any difference anyway. It wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't change corporate America. And I said, you're right, but it changes the preacher. I think when we resist materialism, it changes us. But it is so hard. We leave tomorrow for Israel. I was picking up a few things yesterday, and there was this pair of shoes calling my name. Oh, my God, and they're on sale, and they're so... It, it took everything I could to resist a pair of shoes. But I was preaching on this today, so I had to. I mean, I, I just... I resisted. But why was it so hard? I think the second thing that happens is it does change the world. It just does it in such a small way that you think it would be insignificant. Years ago, I was at a dinner meeting on the plaza. I was leaving, and I was walking to that garage near Barnes & Noble, and there was this guy. You may remember him. He's passed away. He would sit on that bucket upturned, and he would say, Could I have a dollar for a hamburger? And before I could reach for a dollar, I remembered I had this styrofoam box of leftovers. And I said do you like fish? And his eyes lit up, and I said, I have pecan-crusted tilapia on a bed of risotto with some green beans and French bread. I was just for a moment a waiter to the homeless, and I ran upstairs into that little cafe, and I got a fork, and I presented it to him, and it did nothing to change world hunger, but it changed his hunger for one meal, and with dignity, and really good food. The last couple of weeks, I kept calling these pledge cards, and I kept getting reminded, no, we're calling them commitment cards this year, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what difference it makes, but I started thinking about it. It's not really just a pledge, it is a commitment. And I think this commitment that we make is perfectly in line 
with John's vision in the book of Revelation. Just like two pages later, he describes New Jerusalem. You know, the pearly gates, streets of gold, and people think, oh yeah, heaven. But that's not the way he describes it. He describes it as the new city coming down from heaven to the earth. It's his vision for how it should be here. Pearly gates, streets of gold. You hear that? In the world's economy, pearls are for emperors. In God's economy, ah, we just make gates with that stuff. Gold? Oh my gosh, precious gold? Nah, we just pave our streets with that. Isn't that something? If in God's economy, pearls and gold, it's just, it's just stuff. What are people for? 